oh, before it usually begins to really warm up in March. Uh, we do have Bible study this week, the beginning of the 11th month, on Wednesday evening. Wednesday evening at 7 is, is uh, New Moon Bible study. This is a 13-month year, uh, which is why you'll see on the calendar there that uh, Passover is about as late as it can get this year, as well as Feast of Tabernacles, uh, because there is a new moon. I think, it's, I think it was two days before the spring equinox, which means that there are uh, 13 months. The Gregorian calendar and the Jews just uh, insert one when they think it is needed. But if you follow the new moons properly, uh, when they actually fall, it declares itself. You don't have to artificially declare anything. It just happens that you have a 13th month some years, which keeps the 365 and a quarter in balance. Anyway, uh, I had a couple of revisions to make to the 2018 calendar, and that's been done. Uh, and hopefully, we'll be able to get that up on the website pretty quick, so one people can plan for uh, feast trips and vacations and whatever they need. Anyway, we came down to Ezekiel 35 last time. I'll see how much ground I can cover today. Uh, chapter 35 really uh, is an indictment against Esau, uh, those who say they are Jews and are not, uh, false Jews uh, of the tribe of Esau. I won't spend a lot of time on this. You can go through the book of Obadiah, and it is a very strong end-time indictment against them as well, which says that they will have part in the destruction of Jacob uh, and Israel, because uh, he's always hated Jacob. But then once they laugh and party and, and have a good time at the demise of the nations of Israel, uh, then God says he's going to destroy them. So he uses them as a way to punish Israel as he, as he does the Assyrian. Uh, but then the Assyrian and the Edomite both uh, will be punished for what they've done to Israel. So ultimately everybody gets punished for what they've been. God just uses these other nations as a means of punishing Israel. So chapter 35 says, Moreover, the word of the eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. That was a mountain that was in the area of Edom or Esau, and is sometimes used just like uh, the hill of Jerusalem or Mount Zion is used to depict Israel. Mount Seir depicted uh, Esau. And say to it, Thus says the eternal God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you most desolate. Uh, he's, he's following this on the heels of Ezekiel 33 and 34, where he says everybody is responsible for themselves, and then he holds the ministry highly responsible for trouble in the church and in Israel itself. But before that, in a few chapters, he was putting a burden or a, a lamentation against several different peoples and of the Gentiles. And here he's doing the same thing with, uh, with Esau. Consider that Esau, even though it was a brother of Jacob, is Gentile. 
So you have Semitic or Shemite people who are Gentiles. The only ones that are Israelites are the ones who came through Jacob and on down through his sons. So even though they might be brothers or cousins or whatever uh, and still be white, uh, they are Gentiles. Only Israelites, or the only Israelites, came through Jacob. Anyway, he says, I will lay your cities waste, verse 4, and you shall be desolate, and you shall know that I am the Eternal. Using that phrase again. Because you have had a perpetual hatred. Well, that goes back, of course, to Esau and Jacob. And have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity, in the time that their iniquity had an end. So we are on the verge right now of America being destroyed as the leader of the nations of Israel. And Esau, the Edomites, are going to be very, very much involved in that. I think we're all pretty well aware by now that uh, the red badge of Esau uh, is the red badge of the Rothschilds, or red children, uh, from Esau. And there are a lot of people who are looked upon as Jews who are actually Edomites and aren't Jews at all. And they're very much a part of what is going on to destroy the nations of Israel today. They are in high positions in terms of finance and the economic system. And that is one of the things that is going to be a main precursor of our destruction is the financial collapse of Zephaniah 1. So that great crash is on its way, and these people are behind it because of their hatred for us and how they will be involved with the sword that overtakes us. Verse 6, Therefore, as I live, says the eternal God, I will prepare you to blood, and blood shall pursue you. See, you have not hated, since you have not hated blood, even blood shall pursue you. Esau has always been wanting to kill Jacob, to destroy Jacob. So they haven't hated bloodshed. And God says, well, you're, you haven't hated it, so it's going to happen to you. Thus will I make Mount Seir most desolate, and cut off from it him that passes out, and him that returns. So whoever's coming and going from Edom will be destroyed. Uh, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. That's an axiom in the Scriptures, and that's what God is pronouncing here. I will fill his mountains with his slain men. In your hills and in your valleys and in all your rivers shall they fall that are slain with the sword. So Edom has a very dire uh, future after they help destroy our nation and the other nations of Israel, mainly Western Europe. Uh, so where do the Rothschilds have their greatest power? Europe and America. Uh, and maybe behind the scenes in Russia and here and there as well, but they control the economic factors of Israel today <coughs> in order to position to help bring us down. And they're doing it on purpose. I will make you perpetual desolations, and your cities shall not return, and you shall know that I am the Eternal. <coughs> he says that to every people that he pronounces something against against. Because you have said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it, whereas the eternal was there. 
Now, which two nations? Uh, maybe he's referring to the two uh, original, di- the original division of Israel between Judah and Israel. Uh, could be that the main destruction is coming on Ephraim and Manasseh, the U.S. and Britain. Uh, but I think uh, it also includes the other nations of Israel. So probably the two nations he's talking about uh, are Israel and Judah. And he, he brings that out a little later on in chapter 37, uh, showing Ephraim as the leader, even as he establishes in Jeremiah 31 that Ephraim is now the firstborn. So the two nations here are probably the two divisions of Israel that still exist to this day. But God is going to be there. Now that puts me in, in mind of Zechariah 2, 1 and 2, where Christ says He'll come and dwell amongst us uh, in the Promised Land, in Mount Zion, and He will be there. So He will be overseeing what happens to the nations of Israel and Judah here at the end. And... Israel is going to be God's regardless of what Esau is able with his allies to do to us. But we get punished first. Therefore, as I live, verse 11 says the eternal God, I will even do according to your anger and according to your envy, which you have used out of your hatred against them. God always does that. Doesn't he say, if we forgive, we'll be forgiven. If we don't forgive, we won't be Uh, And on and on, he uses that principle. And here he says, with the anger and the envy you've had toward Jacob and what you would have liked to do to Jacob and then here at the end time will do to Jacob, he says, I'll do the same thing to you. What goes around comes around. And I will make myself known among them when I have judged you. So after Israel is destroyed by Esau and Edom, Uh, God will make Himself known to Israel, to the remnant that go into the millennium and in the great white throne judgment when they come up. So when it's all said and done, God is going to regather Jerusalem and Israel, as He said, in so many, many places. So He will make Himself known at that point. And he's, He's going to do the same thing in the church. Uh, I, I believe to this day that both the Tkachas and uh, uh, Stan Raider were Edomites. And uh, he is going to make himself known again after the destruction that they've caused in spiritual Israel, the church. He hasn't yet, but very soon now he's going to gather his people to Zion and they will, he, will be make, he will make himself known to them. He will stir them to come and build his temple. So he's referring to that first on the level of spiritual Israel here at the end, uh, after we have been spiritually destroyed by these Edomites who took over the church. Then it applies to the millennium, uh, after Edom is involved in helping destroy the physical nations of Israel, he will make himself known to them as they come out of the Holocaust and into the millennium. And you shall know that I am the Eternal, and that I have heard all your blasphemies which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate, they are given us to consume. We deserve this. Jacob misused us and cheated us and lied to us, 
and took the birthright, and we deserve the right to consume them. That's been the attitude, uh, was the attitude of Esau, and has been of Edomites ever since. Thus with your mouth you have boasted against me, and have multiplied your words against me. I have heard them. So God says, it isn't really Jacob you're against, it's me. I think that's borne out there in Hebrews 12, where God says Esau could not repent, and therefore will have very strict judgment. But I heard people crying out. And hasn't God been hearing the church crying out since uh, the Tkachas took the church back to Babylon? And, and uh, even most of the splinters are, in a sense, back in Babylon, although not as deeply as worldwide. Thus says the eternal God, When the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. What timing is that speaking of? When will the earth, the whole earth, rejoice? Anybody got a clue? When will the whole earth rejoice? When the two witnesses die. Yeah. So they'll throw a worldwide party and rejoice uh, when they die. Well, that's when God is going to set His hand to finish punishing the heathen through the day of the Lord as He takes His bride up for the honeymoon. And the heathen will have the seven last plagues laid upon them, including what Israelites are left. And then Christ is going to come back, uh, vanquish the heathen, and bring His people back from all over the earth, wherever they're scattered, and make himself known to all the Israelites that have survived. So, he will set his hand to begin truly saving Israel at the time the witnesses die and the earth rejoices for three days, three and a half days. Then they will come up and the whole world is going to then receive God's wrath. <clears throat> but he will have begun making himself known, first of all, to the first fruits in a very powerful way by changing them into spirit. And then shortly, a year thereafter, or a little less, maybe, uh, all the physical survivals, survivals of the, or those who have survived the Holocaust, he will make himself known to them along with his bride to rule them in peace. So this is the time he's speaking of right here at the end. As you did rejoice at the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so will I do to you. So the Edomites will be part of that rejoicing of the world. They will have seen Israel destroyed. They will have 42 months of rule over the earth, except that they can't get rid of those pesky witnesses. And then at the end of their ministry, they kill them in the streets of Jerusalem, and the Edomites and all the world rejoices over them. Three and a half day party. And then it comes to a very sudden end. So you rejoiced over what in Israel, Israel had inherited, which was desolation. So will I do to you. You shall be desolate, O Mount Seir, and all Edomia, even all of it, Edomia also is, was a city or an area of, uh, of Edom or Esau. And they shall know that I am the Eternal. That's the postscript to every pronouncement he makes in the book of Ezekiel. 
So now we then we have another prophecy regarding Israel in chapter 36. Also, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, you mountains of Israel, hear what God has to say. And here it is. Because the enemy has said against you, aha, even the ancient places are ours in possession. They have possessed the church. It's gone right back into its vomit for the most part. And then they're going to come when the abomination of desolation is set up and they're going to claim the Holy Land. They'll take over the newly built temple and the city of Jerusalem, which will have been restored. And the church, of course, will flee to Zion at that point. So they say the ancient places are ours in possession. Now we see that even here on a local basis, don't we? We have people who came to understand that this was the promised land and this was the place to go into the wilderness to get away from the destruction that's coming on the country. Some of them came out and now they're saying, we own the land. This promised land's ours in possession because you aren't fit to be here. Speaking of me mainly and you secondarily. So even the very beginnings of what God is beginning to do here in the Holy Land, the original promised land, we already have enemies who are saying, you don't deserve it, we do. Isn't this crystal clear what's going on? It's so simple. So it's on a very small basis, then it's on a larger basis. When they will come in and the heathen will overrun Jerusalem and the temple and Matthew 24, you have to flee to Zion and be protected there because they will say it's all ours. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says the eternal God, because they have made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side that you might be a possession to the residue of the heathen. So these who are trying to take over here are not following God anymore even though they think they are but they are among the heathen who are trying to take over what God has started. They are spiritual Gentiles at this point and don't even know it. Just like all of Christendom think they worship the true God and they don't. They worship, they know not what, Satan the devil and don't even know it. They worship on his day. They keep his holidays. They keep his rules. They say God's rules are done away with. No, they're not Christians. They have the name of Christ only. Just as the ancient Pharisees had the name of God and Moses only. But what did God think of them? What did Christ think of them? He told them they were worshiping Satan. Clearly and unequivocally. <clears throat> and the same is true of Christianity today. They do not know God. So it's true of those who have departed from God and still have his name within the church and those in Israel who claim to be Christian and do not understand what Christianity even is. They are that in name only. Anyway, uh, therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the eternal God, because they have made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, that you might be a possession to the residue of the heathen. And they will. Uh, Ezekiel 5 even says, a third will die of famine and pestilence, a third by the sword, a third go into captivity. 
So here he's saying that the heathen will take over the church, which they did, and then the heathen will take over all the land of Israel, which is about to happen. Uh, and you are taken up in the lips of talkers and are an infamy of the people. Uh, we read about that at the end of Ezekiel 33, where the one that God would send would be talked about behind the walls and behind the doors. And, oh, he preaches okay, but he's no good himself. <laughs> and uh, not only are they trying to take me down, they're trying to take you down and get rid of the church entirely. That's what their lawsuit asked for, is the church be dissolved. That means not just me, that means you. So the war is not against just me, and it is against God. Therefore, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the eternal God. Thus says the eternal God to the mountains, to the hills, to the rivers, to the valleys, to the desolate wastes, and to the cities that are forsaken, which became a prey and derision to the residue of the heathen that are round about. Uh, this nation is going to be taken over and taken into captivity. And that's what this is speaking of. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, Surely in the fire of my jealousy have I spoken against the residue of the heathen and against all Edomia, or Edom, which have appointed my land into their possession with the joy of all their heart, with the spiteful minds to cast it out for a prey. Aren't they going to be happy when they can set up the abomination of desolation and God's true people flee to Zion and they take over the holy land and the holy city, the true one? Oh, they're going to be happy. And they have 42 months of happiness and joy except for the people in Zion who keep sending these guys out to give plagues and stop the rain. But other than that, they're going to be rejoicing over what they've accomplished. Most of... Israel will be destroyed. Just a small remnant of the church will be protected. Six, prophesy therefore concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, to the hills, to the rivers, to the valleys, thus says the eternal God, behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my fury <coughs> because you have borne the shame of the heathen. He will take vengeance over the heathen as a result of what they have done to his people Israel. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, I have lifted up my hand. Surely the heathen that are about you, they shall bear their shame. They won't know that it's about to get them in the neck. They'll just be so happy they've destroyed Israel. That's been the history of the heathen all the way through Israel's history, hasn't it? When they could whip Israel, they were always happy. Verse 8, But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people of Israel, for they are at hand to come. Now, it's metaphorical here, but who is he sending to first begin shooting out branches and bearing fruit? Haggai 2 says that it will be the remnant and the witnesses. Uh, he says there in Zechariah 3, He will bring forth his branch and that every man will have his own vine and fig tree. So Zerubbabel will be involved, and there will be signs and wonders. And the church is the first one to begin to put out branches and produce fruit. There you go back to Ezekiel 16, where it says God has destroyed the former church worldwide, 
and it has become a dead and dry tree, but he will take a twig from the top and plant it, and it will grow into a, an enormous tree instead of a spreading vine that didn't bear much fruit. So this is speaking of when God first begins to do that which will culminate in the first resurrection and in the gathering of physical Israel to Jerusalem under the rule of Christ. But it starts here in the promised land. Because it says you'll begin to yield your fruit for they that are at hand to come. So God will begin to produce fruit which will cause them to come and build the temple and build Jerusalem. And then in the millennium, they will see the fruit of the bride, the 144,000 first fruits, be ripened and turned into immortality. And the new heavens and new earth come down and they will be at hand to come. They'll start gathering to Christ and his bride in Jerusalem. So this again is fulfilled first on a very small and then on a greater level. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. And I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, even all of it. So it'll start small. God always starts saying small, doesn't he? And then it will grow, and it will finally encompass the whole house of Israel. Now that goes clear through not only the millennium, but then even the great white throne judgment at the end of it, when all Israel that is left in the graves will be resurrected. So it starts as a twig and grows, and a remnant of the church comes. Then Christ takes his bride, brings her back, along with the whole new Jerusalem and the Father and the Son, the beginning of the millennium. They all come to it. Then they do it again at the end of the thousand years when the general resurrection occurs and they gravitate to the Father and the Son in holy Jerusalem. So we can be, if accounted worthy, a part of the very beginning of what God is going to do that will finally encompass the whole world. And we will start building the waste places, starting with Jerusalem itself. Have a year and not quite a half to get it built before the abomination is set up there. Verse 11, And I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bring fruit. And I will settle you after your old estates, and will do better to you than at your beginnings, and you shall know that I am the Eternal. He's the only one that could do it. So it'll be better than it was when they crossed the Jordan and went into the original promised land where the grapes were so big they had to carry them between two men and where the earth was very, very productive at that time. He says it's going to even be better than it was then. Yes, I will cause men to walk upon you, even my people Israel, speaking of the land of Israel, the, the promised land. And they shall possess you, and shall be their, and you shall be their inheritance, and you shall no more henceforth bereave them of men. Now, the land of Israel has been bereaved of men in the past, when captivities occurred to the Babylonians, the Assyrians. And now we have one more great big uh, captivity coming to the Assyrian and all the nations who combine as a coalition against America and Israel. And that is going to happen 
very, very shortly now. But he says, after that, this won't happen anymore. Uh, the 13, thus says the eternal God, because they say to you, you your land devoured up men and have bereaved your, na- bereaved your nations, therefore you shall devour men no more, neither bereave your nations any more, says the eternal God. I think he's also saying there that we have been a part of bereaving other people's lands. We've bereaved your nations. Uh, what has America become? We beat up on anybody we want. We're the hammer of the whole earth. And we will be re- the, the land of Israel will be bereaved once more of its people. And the land of Israel will devour men no more. Neither bereave your nations anymore, says the Eternal. Our military industrial complex will be destroyed along with everything else. And Israel will never again be warlike. Neither will I cause men to hear in you the shame of the heathen anymore. You'll never be taken into captivity again. Neither shall you bear the reproach of the people anymore. Neither shall you cause your nations to fall anymore. So, the last time it will occur will be this destruction of the great whore Israel of Revelation 17 and 18 and Ezekiel 16. And then they will come and take over the promised land, but they won't whip up on the church that is there. It will flee to Zion. Now, if anybody is lackadaisical and decides that there's something material that's more important than running immediately and goes back in the house will be killed. Uh, Just like God separated men from Gideon, He's going to make another separation right there as to who will and will not be allowed to go to Zion. But that's the last time that they will destroy the land of Israel. They won't be allowed to in the millennium. And when they come up against Israel again at the end of the millennium, God will cause them to be destroyed. So, this coming destruction of... Well, this destruction we just saw of the church and the coming destruction of the nations of Israel will be the last time they are destroyed. The church will no longer be destroyed again. What has been destroyed is out there and what's left will go into the tribulation. But... The remnant will come and build Jerusalem and the temple and then flee to Zion and from there be either changed or resurrected into the kingdom of God. And the peoples of Israel will never be again destroyed. They'll come into the millennium and have peace and then the great white throne judgment and have peace. So what's about to hit us will be the last time it occurs. 16. Uh, Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwells in their own land, or when they dwelt there, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. So, it isn't just the evil heathen. He says, Israel was in great sin against me. What does God see when He looks down on this nation day and night? What does he see down here? 
lying and stealing and cheating and fornication and adultery and murder and idolatry and covetousness and all of his laws being broken across this land. So he says, I look upon you like I would a removed woman from the camp. Unclean. Wherefore I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. Did I say our Christian nation is ungodly and satanic in who they worship? Yeah, well, this echoes that. It's idol worship. A false Christ. Wrong kind of idol. Doesn't even look like Christ. Long-haired, effeminate-looking kind of a guy. I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their doings. I judged them. Almost total destruction. And when they entered into the heathen, where they went, they profaned my holy name, when they said to them, These are the people of the Lord, and are gone forth out of his land. They won't even admit what they've been. They'll go in and say, Well, we were Christians, and we were the chosen people of God. And God will say, No. But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen where they went. See, God has attached His name to Israel. And then when we sin and commit idolatry and every other thing that is against God, it makes Him ashamed of us. He says we should be sweet incense in our prayers to Him, but instead we're a stench in His nostrils. That's one prayer I like to pray, is that God will change me from a stench to a sweet smell. That's what He wants of us. But we'll hang to our self-righteousness, He says, as a nation, even when we go into captivity. And has not the church hung to its self-righteousness, Laodicean attitude, and still expecting Christ to save them in spite of all the sins that are within the church today? and the departure from God that has occurred. You can't change what you will not admit. But he said, I had pity for my name, not for you, but for me, he says. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the eternal God, I do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. I have to destroy you in order to... Preserve the holiness of my name because you profaned it and sinned against me and become idolatrous. Now, how can I tell the heathen I'm God when you're supposedly the people of God and you won't follow me? I'm going to have to destroy you before I can get them to even listen. I've got to preserve my holiness, my sovereignty, my power. He has to destroy Israel for his namesake. He had to destroy the church, which was not Christ-like, for his namesake. This represents me, he says? No. I'm going to spew it out. I'll let the whole world know. That's not my church anymore. I turned my face from it. I destroyed it. Now, if a few will obey me, I'll turn my face back to them and bless them. And the few Israelites that are left when this destruction is done will turn to him, the beginning of the millennium, 
and he will turn and bless them. And they will come first to God. And then the Gentiles will see that, and they will come and keep the Feast of Tabernacles, except for a few knotheads who decide that they don't want any rain. But they'll come around. I have to do this. I will sanctify my great name, which is profaned among the heathen when they destroyed his people, which you have profaned in the midst of them. We've become just like them. Didn't it say the church was taken back and set on its pedestal in Babylon there in Zechariah 5? And aren't we, when he starts describing us in Ezekiel 16 as a nation, he says, you look like Gentiles to me. You don't look like children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You look like Hittites and Hivites, or whatever two names he used. You look like heathen. And the heathen shall know that I am the eternal, says the eternal God. When he destroys Israel, that will help them see that he's God. That even his chosen people are not privileged. They get punished for their sins as well. They'll know the eternal God when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. When I destroy you and the ones that survive turn to me, then they'll begin to understand who's the boss. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and I will bring you into your own land. Well, who does that first? The church, the remnant. Then the remainder of Israel, the remnant of Israel, the beginning of the millennium. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Well, God's going to convert the remnant of the church and bring them. He's going to convert the remnant of Israel and bring them. And what will he do? A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments, and do them. What does he tell the church in Isaiah 54? Once I bring you and give you the Garden of Eden, he says, it will be my righteousness not your self-righteousness. So he's saying the exact same thing here in Ezekiel 37, he says in Isaiah 54, end of the chapter. Not self-righteousness anymore, which is what characterized Laodiceanism, but his righteousness. He'll put his spirit there. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. He's bringing the remnant of the church to the original promised land, says he'll come and dwell in the midst of us and be the glory in us. And then he's going to bring down the heavenly Jerusalem beginning of the millennium with the Father and the bride. And the same thing will happen. They'll be my people and I'll be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleannesses and I will call for the corn and I will increase it and lay no famine on you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field, that you shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. He'll feed his remnant church in her place, as it says in Revelation 12, and take care of her while the world is being uh, confronted by the witnesses 
with plagues and lack of rain and so on. But they will not have famine anymore. Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. What he has done to the church, and ultimately when he begins to bless it and give them his spirit, and it becomes his righteousness instead of our self-righteousness, we will look at what we have been and loathe ourselves and say, thank God that he's brought us out of it. And he says again, not for your sakes do, it, do I do this, says the eternal God. Be it known to you. Get it. Be aware. I'm not doing this because you were so stinking righteous. I'm doing it for my name's sake. It wasn't, it wasn't for you. You Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the eternal God, In the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the waste shall be builded. Now, when is that? Isaiah 44, uh, toward the end of the chapter, about two-thirds of the way through, he says, I will remove all your sins in one day, like a cloud, they'll be removed. Zechariah uh, 1 or 2. No, it's in 3. Zechariah 3 says, I'll remove all your iniquity in one day. Here he says, in the day. There are other references to this through the prophecies as well. So he is going to cleanse those that he is going to bring as his remnant so that they can then build the cities. What do they do? They will start restoring the waste. The temple, Jerusalem, and even the villages around in Zechariah 2. Jerusalem shall be built as towns without walls, and there will be much men and cattle there. So they'll be blessed. It wasn't because you were so righteous, but I will give you my righteousness. And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. He says the same thing in Isaiah 51, where he implores us to look to Abraham and to Sarah, and that he will give us the Garden of Eden. That's what the world will see around Zion and Jerusalem. And they'll become jealous. And then they will come and attack it and take over. And those that have been given, that kind of blessing will go to Zion where that blessing will return and remain. While the heathen think they've taken over God's original promised land. They'll know where it is then. Middle East won't mean a thing to them. Just like the temple itself. It's going to far outweigh anything that has been done before. The former temple in this age, Herbert Armstrong put a few gold filter, uh, fixtures and a little gold filigree here and there in what he called the house of the eternal. What's, the, what's this last one going to look like? All the gold of Solomon is going to be brought forth and it will be covered with gold. And the pavement, the floors will be gold. And it will far exceed what the house of God in Pasadena looked like, by far. Just as the heavenly Jerusalem will supersede it uh, beyond our imagination where the streets will be of gold. So God starts it in a small way and then expands it. 
Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Eternal, build the ruined places and plant that that was desolate. I, the Eternal, have spoken it, and I will do it. So he's going to run the heathen, essentially the Mormons, out of here. What they have in storage will be left for us. And he will bless us. And the heathen that are left around will know that God has done this. It'll catch their attention. And then ultimately the beast and the false prophet will come and set up their headquarters there. Thus says the eternal God, I will yet for this uh, be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock. People are going to begin to, when they see signs and wonders done, as in Zechariah 3, and they see Christ working out here in this promised land, then they'll begin to inquire of the Eternal, and they will be stirred to come help build the temple. And I will increase them with men like a flock, says many men and cattle there. As the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. It will happen on a small scale as a microcosm of what will come to the whole world when he blesses his church. And then it will come to the whole world in the millennium. It's dual all the way through. Now I'm going to get into chapter 37. I don't know if we'll finish it or not, but I, I kind of had a goal to do this today uh, because there's a lot I think I grasp here that I did not in times past uh, let's look at chapter 37. We know the song about the bones them, bones them, dry bones, and hear the word of the Lord, and so on. It was a, a, a minstrel song about this chapter. But let's see what it means between God and His people and the world. The hand of the Eternal was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Eternal. So here again, Ezekiel is picked up and moved by God. Uh, just as Ezekiel was in the chariots of fire, and so on. And Ezekiel talks about those in chapter 1 and 5 of this book, or 7, whatever it is. So God carried him and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about, kind of showed him through the valley, flew over it, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. Been there a while. And he said to me, Son of man, ask him a question. Can these bones live? Now from Ezekiel's standpoint, looking down at a pile of bones, he'd seen death in his life, and he'd seen bones in his life. And uh, he says, why did he ask me that? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. He didn't really commit himself by saying, no, they can't, because he was being carried about in the Spirit by God. Uh, and he didn't want to say they can, because that was beyond his experience. So he said, you know. He threw it back. Again he said to me, prophesy upon these bones and say to them, O you dry bones, hear the word of the Eternal. Now, you'll notice something here in verse 4 that will be carried throughout this chapter. He is using Ezekiel to do something here. 
God is not doing it all himself, in other words. What occurs here has a man involved. Okay? Isn't that what we just read? Keep that in mind as we go on through here. Tell them, hear the word of the Eternal. So that's what he was to say. So he's involved in talking to the bones. Did you ever talk to bones? <laughs> I visited graves and talked about them. Or I used to, when we were in South Carolina, I, I had a big dog and uh, he needed exercise. And there was a cemetery just down the road from me. So that was the place I could turn him loose and just let him run among the tombstones uh, without getting run over and so on. So very frequently at night, I'd, he and the, the dog and I would visit the cemetery. And uh, I remember reading all those names and all those dates on those headstones, and a lot of them went back into the 1700s, being on the East Coast. And uh, it was always interesting to me to see how long people had lived and when they died and where they were from or whatever information was given. So I'd kind of walk among the bones talking to myself, but I never got any answers. The only thing I could hear was the dog running. It was very, very quiet in that boneyard. So, uh, in my experience, nah, you don't hear much out of bones. But he was told to tell these bones to hear God. Now, if I had been in that cemetery and I'd have said to those tombstones there and those graves, hear God, I wouldn't have heard much of an echo and they wouldn't have heard me, would they? Nah, they were dead. This is what he's facing here when God says, talk to the bones. Kind of a strange request to Ezekiel, I'm sure. So he says, hear the word of the eternal. Thus says the eternal God to these bones. Here's what God told me to tell you. Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. Now, this isn't me. This is God saying this, Ezekiel's saying. Uh, hear, hear the word of the eternal. God says you're going to live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And again, you shall know that I am the Eternal. So at a time of resurrection, people are going to recognize that they've been dead, and now they live, and only God could have done that. I've seen a lot of dead animals, and I've seen a lot of bones laying in the desert. And to me, they were just dead. No more nothing. But these are going to know who God is again. Or for the first time. So, Ezekiel says, I talked as I was commanded. <coughs> and as I talked, there was a noise. And behold, a shaking. And the bones came together, bone to his bone. Ankle bone attached to the shin bone and so on. That would have been scary. Big valley full of dry, white, bleached out bones and they suddenly began to come together because skeletons get scattered and, you know, all over the place. Animals carry them off and birds scatter them and, and so on and you don't know which bones go to which skeleton. 
in a situation like this where it's just full of them. But they all began to find the proper skeleton and come together and form it. <clears throat> and when I beheld, probably in great fear and awe, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. They were still just laying there. They are all back together. Bones came together. Everything came onto the bones, and then even the skin. But they were still dead. Then said he to me, now he's going to have Ezekiel involved in the next step as well. Talk to the wind. <laughs> kind of a strange request again. Talk to the wind. Oh, okay. Wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus says the eternal God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So he's told to talk to the wind and cause the wind to come and breathe life into these mannequins as they now are. So Ezekiel as a man is very much involved in this. God isn't doing all this for him. He's telling him, you talk to him and then you talk to the wind and you cause this to happen. I never really noticed that before. It wasn't just God doing it. The man is involved. Now I ask you, is this referring only to the first resurrection? Because the dead in Christ are in the grave, and those who are alive and remain rise to meet Him in the air. And there's no man around to do that, right? Two witnesses have just been killed, and they'll be raised as well. So his last two prophets won't even be around. Right? He will do all of it himself when that resurrection occurs. But then again, well, let's read on down, because he says this is a whole house of Israel. So how do we solve that perplexity? Then he said to me, oh, to the wind, uh, verse 10, So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceeding great army. Now, he, he told the wind to come and breathe into them, and it did. And then they got up and stood up, and he almost fainted, <laughs> I, I would guess. It, it, it probably knocked the wind right out of him when the wind came into these people. This would have been very, very startling and dramatic, wouldn't you think? Then God said to him, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried, and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Our parts are all scattered. Uh, they've been eaten up by beasts and fowls, and now scattered across, and lost. So, in metaphor, he's saying, you know, you look at a pile of bones, and its hope is lost. But here God says, these will come up, and they'll, thought, they'll think, yeah, we were lost, we were dead, but now we're alive. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the eternal God, Behold, O my people, I will open up your graves and cause you to come out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. 
So what he's saying here and what he is showing Ezekiel is a vision. And he says these bones that are in this valley represent the whole house of Israel, but they do not include all the house of Israel in this vision. Follow me? The first resurrection only has to do with 144,000 Israelites and grafted in Gentiles who have become Israelites. The resurrection at the end of the millennium includes all Israelites who's ever lived who've never had a chance at salvation. So, all Israel is not resurrected at the same time, right? There's different resurrections. Paul made it very clear, each in his own order of resurrection. So, what he's telling Ezekiel is that these bones in this valley that I'm showing you in vision represent the whole house of Israel that will, in its order, be resurrected. All the bones of Israel are not in one valley today, are they? There's Israelites scattered in graves all over the earth. There are even Israelites, spiritual Israelites from the church, who were called in this end time who have died in Malaysia and Africa and Europe and all over the world, who are dead. Even at the first resurrection, he'll gather them from the four winds. So it obviously has to be vision and imagery here that this valley of dry bones isn't all of Israel, but it represents all of Israel who will in their order be resurrected. That I didn't get before. I just sort of skipped over it and says, well, this is talking about all Israel. Well, they'll never be in one spot in one valley. They're, some of them are shark poop down in the bottoms of the ocean. You know, they're all over the place. They're not in one valley. So this obviously has to be a type or a representation that all Israel will eventually be resurrected. Now, didn't Paul say in Romans eleven twenty six? All Israel shall be saved. But Paul himself said, each in his order, in his own resurrection. First resurrection, the first fruits. Second resurrection in the millennium, the great white throne judgment. Even a third resurrection of those who have had a chance and died. So they're not all in one valley somewhere. They're all over the place and come up at different times. But it's a representation of all of them that eventually all of them will be resurrected. So he said, Prophesy and say to them, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves. Well, it doesn't happen all at once. Graves are opened first resurrection. Graves are opened in Revelation 20 at the second resurrection. And you shall know that I am the Eternal. Whenever you come up, you're going to know who I am. Even the third resurrection, they're going to know who He is. A great gulf will be there. When I, when I have opened your graves, O my people, each in his own order, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my Spirit in you, and you shall live, and I shall place you in your own land, then shall you know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it and performed it, says the Eternal. Now, don't we who have been 
being spiritually resurrected here after the church has been basically destroyed, killed? Have we not been brought into the promised land and given a new understanding, a new direction? Isn't it, in a sense, a resurrection of our spiritual lives from what we experienced in Worldwide? Don't we have an awful lot of information and knowledge now that we did not have then? We know even where we are now, and nobody knew where the promised land was until God revealed it here recently. Everybody thought it was in the Middle East. 99.9% of people on the earth and more still believe that. But eventually it's going to be known by the whole world this is the place. So God has already begun spiritually resurrecting the spiritually dead. Worldwide, died. And out of it, a few names came. And he is bringing parts of worldwide Sardis and parts of Laodicea together to form Philadelphia, which will be here in the Promised Land. And the gates that we protected there. We're already into Laodicea, aren't we? Obviously. And nobody's been protected yet. (laughs) But they will be. And that's the ones God says He will protect. So they'll be the ones in Jerusalem and Zion. Now, there are some types here that I want to get into a little bit. Because with the first fulfillment of Ezekiel 37... It's speaking of the church, which comes back from the spiritually dead, basically, and forms the righteous remnant that will build the temple in Jerusalem. So, in one sense, oh, it's not a physical resurrection, and it's not the first resurrection we read of in Thessalonians and Corinthians. It's a, it's a spiritual understanding, a resurrection to a greater life to a greater job to a fulfillment of the things God has to be done here at the end. And he's going to use human instruments to do it. That's part of the point of showing how Ezekiel was the one to do this. God gave the orders, told him what to say, and then after he spoke it, it happened. Now, let's go back and consider Moses and Elijah, whom he says there in Malachi 4, are the two types that will be used in the end time to represent the two who preach to the world. Moses and Elijah, one the lawgiver from God, the other one who did miracles and various things back in Kings. Now Christ ties them to the New Testament church and to the end time prophecies in the, uh, the word leaves me, the resuscitation on the mount, uh, the transfiguration, where he showed the disciples in vision Moses and Elijah. And they thought the millennium must be here because he'd explained to them that Moses and Elijah will come up in the first resurrection as first fruits. So they thought when they saw Moses and Elijah with Christ, it was Feast of Tabernacles. It was the millennium. Shall we build booths for them? No. No. He says, I'm just showing you something here. And then God said 
don't just listen to Moses and Elijah, listen to my son. That's the one we're to listen to. Okay, but Malachi says there will be a type come again of Moses and Elijah. Then Christ ties Elijah specifically with John the Baptist, right? Where he said, Elijah must first come, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. So he was saying there that John the Baptist was a type of Elijah, but there is another to come. And Malachi 4 makes that clear. That's right here at the end. Christ said, yeah, he is to come, but, it, but there's already one among you. What was John the Baptist's job? Prepare the way for Christ. Right? Now, the Elijah to come, which wasn't Herbert Armstrong. He died a long time ago. The Elijah and Moses to come will be there until they're killed in the streets of Jerusalem at the end of their ministry. And then the end will come. Now, go back to the original Elijah. And there were things done there that, in a way, seemed out of sync or maybe unnecessary in some senses because they weren't necessarily there for that Israel of that day in a... Well, some of them were, but not all of them. Now, there were seven resurrections of people in the Bible record. Actually, eight. Well, you might say nine, but I'll explain. But seven were raised up as individuals by others. Elijah was used to bring up one. Elisha was used to bring up two. Christ himself, while he was here, raised up two. Peter and Paul, one each. That's seven. Then, of course, when Christ died, the graves were opened, and when he was resurrected, those people came out of those graves. Much like here. They came together, maybe. I mean, the earthquakes opened the graves. But the Scripture clearly says that when he was resurrected, they were resurrected. So, their bodies may have been revealed by the earthquake, and then they were resurrected three days later. They weren't going to be resurrected before Christ. And then they walked into Jerusalem. So he was the eighth to be resurrected as a human. And then those who went into Jerusalem at his resurrection were the ninth occurrence, let's say. But seven individual resurrections. Now, when Elijah resurrected the widow's son, is not Israel spoken of as a widow in later scriptures? But all Israel didn't know about that. He had come there. God had directed him to go to this widow's house and to perform the miracles that occurred of the oil and the meal. And then her young son died. I don't know how old Elijah was this time, but she was young enough to have just produced a child which he could pick up and carry. Now, this will blow a lot of people away, but he lived in that house with her and that kid for a year. They weren't married. What happened during that year? It doesn't say. But he was a man of God. Maybe nothing wrong happened. But it would sure spook us if we saw a man of God living with a woman for a year in the same house, wouldn't it? Oh, we would all pick up our skirts and run into the desert. And that probably will not happen, but 
Just, just saying, <laughs> you know. Who knows what went on there? But the kid died. And Elijah took him upstairs, and he was resurrected. God resurrected him, but he used the man, just like he used Ezekiel here in Ezekiel 37. You do it. You tell him, and then you talk to the wind, and it'll do it. So, that's what happened there. Now, there's been a conundrum in this that has always sort of puzzled me, because when Elisha took over from Elijah, he asked God to give him even greater gifts and to do more miracles than Elijah had. Now, why? And it happened. I mean, the metal of the axe floated up out of the water. He resurrected one person, and then when he died, Elisha died, and was put in a sepulcher. Uh, some people came along and, and murdered some people or killed them in war. And they didn't want it known because of the ramifications of what might be done as a result of them killing these people. So they opened the sepulcher where Elisha was and threw the body in there. And when it hit Elisha's bones, it was resurrected. And Elijah was dead. I mean, Elisha was dead when it happened. Just touching his bones resurrected that person. Now, that's greater than Elijah ever did, right? Elijah raised up one at God's behest of a widow of Israel. Then Elijah killed the prophets of Baal, and he said it wouldn't rain, and it didn't for three years. Same thing he tells the two witnesses will do. Uh, and the same plagues of Egypt that Moses did will be done again, but in far greater magnitude. Elijah killed a few prophets of Baal. He had a resurrection. He overcame Jezebel, and the dogs finally ate her. But there will be a woman come against the end time Elijah too. I believe that, because that's in that story, right? Some form of some woman or church will come against the end time Elijah. Now, Elijah was carried away in a chariot of fire. But Elisha wasn't, even though he did greater miracles. Now, what good did that do for God to send a chariot of fire and pick Elijah up and move him somewhere? Because letters came from him later. He was just transported somewhere. But did that have any great significance for Israel? Did anybody even see it? Except Elisha, who was there. So where does this Elisha character fit? He did greater works than Elijah, and yet Elijah is one of the end-time prophets. The end-time prophets are going to do much greater miracles and have plagues all over the earth, not just in Mitzrayim, and have the whole earth, wherever they say, not have rain, and certainly kill a lot of prophets of Baal who come against them in a much greater way than was ever done in the past. The answer can only be one thing. Elijah was the original prophet that God is going to bring back in type in one of the two witnesses. And Moses was the other who he's going to bring forth to do what? The same thing that John the Baptist did on a physical level. Prepare the way for Christ to come. That's their job. 
to prepare the way for Christ. When they get done with their ministry and what they've done to this world, three and a half days later, when they are resurrected, will be when Christ comes. So when he used John the Baptist as a type and said there's another Elijah to come after John the Baptist, but he says John the Baptist prepared for my first coming. These two are going to prepare for my last, my second coming. In glory, at least. He's been back and forth quite a bit, but you know what I mean. So then, Elijah and Moses are the end-time two prophets. And there is not another one to come, right? When those two are killed, the resurrection's three days later, three and a half days. So there's no more human prophets to come, right? So then, how do we have Elisha coming after Elijah and doing greater works than Elijah ever did? Because Elisha is a direct type of Christ. He will do greater works than Elijah did. He will do greater works, or did do greater works, than John the Baptist did. He will do greater works than the end time two, Moses and Elijah, will do. And they're the last two. So Elijah, or Elisha, can only be an absolute type of Christ. Now, when Christ became bones on this earth, when he died, there were other dry bones in the graves about Jerusalem. And metaphorically, at least, when his bones touched their bones, they were resurrected. So Ezekiel 37 was fulfilled in Christ in the resurrection that occurred when he was resurrected. Bones came together. Sinew and flesh came on them, and then the breath of life, and they walked back into Jerusalem to testify that he was the Christ. And they knew that he was the Lord. Didn't like it and didn't want him, but they knew he was. Okay? So all these prophecies of the past are tied into the very near future that we are going to see and experience. I do believe that all these things, basically, that Elijah and Moses did, they did as a type for the future. And God said that the things Moses did at the Red Sea and the plagues in Egypt and all of that, we just read, I think, last week, would be done in a greater way here at the end time in far more dramatic fashion that would make us forget the Red Sea and the original Moses. So God is going to do through the church things that He has never done before. They were done in the past as a dress rehearsal for something greater to come. And we are now on the edge of that. So whatever the end time Moses and Elijah do will be done in greater fashion by the one to follow them, pictured by Elisha, who did more than Elijah. And yet Elijah and Moses are going to do more than any human being before them, including the originals. doesn't make them more righteous than the originals. It's just that they do greater works. Didn't Christ say to the church, the works that I have done, you shall do greater works? He wasn't lying. Now, did James and Peter and John do greater works 
as individuals than Christ did? No. He raised two, and more came up when he died and was resurrected. And they only brought up two among themselves. One for Peter, one for Paul. So they didn't do greater works than he did. He healed the sick left and right. They didn't do greater works. They did some, where people were healed when they walked by their shadow. So they did similar works to Christ. But here in the end, he was prophesying. And it hasn't happened up to this point. The greatest things that have been done since Christ was here were done by Peter, James, and John, and Paul. But they didn't supersede what he did. Not at all. So it had to be a prophecy for the future. And it certainly hasn't occurred from Peter and John until today, has it? Did Herbert Armstrong do greater works than Peter and John and Paul and Christ had done? No. Were some sick folk healed? Yes. So it's only left to two and those who are following to do greater works than Christ did. It has to happen. He prophesied it. He said it would happen. So we may see more resurrections. We may see more healings. We will see more plagues than ever before. God is going to do a work that is the greatest work that has ever been done. And there will be more of it than there was in the days of Christ because greater works, it is prophesied, have to be done. And those are the only two left to do it. And then Christ, Elisha, comes. And he will do even greater works. He will restore the whole earth. And by the time his plan is done, all the bones of Israel will have been resurrected each in his order, each in his own time. So, he will resurrect billions. The two witnesses in the end time church may resurrect one or two or three or five or six dozen, who knows? But he will resurrect billions. Of course, he'll be doing that through them. Because he said to Ezekiel, I'm telling you what to do, you do it, and I'll fix it. Because Ezekiel was probably standing there saying, yeah, I'm going to talk to these bones. That'll be a big help. I'm going to talk to the wind. That'll be a big help. No. He was directed what to say, and then God did it. So when the witnesses give the word of God, God will do it. Do you think they're going to turn on a switch and fire come out of their mouths? No, God will do that. God will shut off the rain. God will cause greater plagues than ever occurred in Mitzrayim. So it's God doing it all. But it's going to be done in far more dramatic fashion than it ever has before. And that's what Ezekiel 37 is telling us. It's going to start with a small remnant of the church wherein he will do great miracles that will stir people to come and build his temple and his city and then Satan will try to destroy them. They'll go to Zion and Satan will think, I've won. And then they'll have these pesky two after him for three and a half years. And then they'll kill him and the whole world will rejoice as we just read back here. When that occurs, then they're going to find out who God is. And those witnesses are going to be resurrected 
and meet Christ in the air along with Moses and Abraham and everybody else that are part of the 144,000. And the world is going to go into shock. The party's over. <laughs> Turn out the lights. The party's over. When they're resurrected, they're going to say, uh-oh, and then the seven last plagues are going to hit. You can read anything in the Bible, brethren, and whatever you read there is going to be done in the near future in a far greater way than anything you can read. Because God is going to show the whole world who God is, who is in charge. It's the whole point of the book of Ezekiel. So I think I understand Ezekiel 37 better than I ever have, and I hope that sheds some light on it.